When I first got to Kenya, I stayed with my friend and somebody said, if you're interested in animals, you should meet Lewis Leakey, who was curator of the Natural History Museum, but spent his life searching for fossilized remains of Stone Age people living across Africa. We used to go for three months every summer to Olduvai Gorge. He was convinced, as was his wife, Mary Leakey, that there had been Stone Age people there. So Gillian and I shared a tent and we spent all day digging for fossils. It was very hot and exhausting. But in the evening, we were allowed to walk out on the plains and all the animals were there. I mean, there were lions and rhinos and, and giraffes just all around the gorge. They're not there now, but they were then. And one evening, I just felt something and I looked back and there was this young male lion, fully grown with mane sprouting on his shoulder. And Gillian and I were made to take Mary Leakey's two dogs that always came on the expedition, Dalmatians. Well, as we were walking along the bottom of the gorge, a tiny little mouse ran across the trail and both the dogs took off. We didn't have leads or collars or anything. And that's exactly when I felt this lion. So we were calling and finally, thank goodness, they came out. We have to climb up onto the open plain. So we did that. We get to the top. Gillian lets go of Toots, the champion of all breeds of Kenya, Mary Leakey's beloved dog. And what does Toots do? Races back down to look for the mouse. So we called and called, and I thought, well, okay. I said, Gillian, I'm going to have to go down and find her. But fortunately, at that moment, Toots arrived. So I think it was that evening around the campfire that Leakey decided I was the person he'd been looking for to go and study chimps. I aspire to change the world too because of the hope she gave me. She devoted her life together. Together we can, together we will. What is your greatest reason for hope? I'm Jane Goodall, and this is the Hopecast. Today I get to speak with someone whose work and influence inspires me, Lisa Jackson vice president of environment, policy, and social initiatives of Apple. Lisa served as administrator for the United States Environmental Protection Agency during the Obama administration, where she managed U.S. efforts to address climate change, reduce greenhouse gases, and promote environmental education. Now at Apple, Lisa leads the company's environmental initiatives including efforts to use renewable energy and sustainable materials, while also leading Apple's racial equity and justice initiative. I'm looking forward to our discussion about how one of the largest corporations in the world can have such a massive impact on the health of our planet. I hope you enjoy this hopeful conversation with Lisa Jackson. Lisa Jackson, I am so really thrilled 
to welcome you to this episode of Hopecast. And I think back to a short conversation we had, what seems years and years ago in Davos, and we haven't really had an opportunity to talk again since then. So I'm looking forward to this very, very much. I am thrilled to be here. And I agree, we had such a moment of purpose and fun in Davos. So I hope we have the same thing here where we we have real purpose, but we also take some time to recognize all you're doing and how important it is to bring joy to this work. You know how I began born loving animals and wanting to learn about them, which led step by step into what I'm doing now. How did it begin for you? Very differently. So I was raised in New Orleans on the Gulf Coast of the United States. Um, Most people know a city that was devastated by a major hurricane, Katrina, in 2005. But when I was growing up, you know, urban environment, sort of suburban, I really didn't have that connection to the natural world. I always tell people we lived on one of the most mighty rivers in the world, the Mississippi. And I don't remember the first time I saw it, but I wasn't a kid. You know, I didn't see this as a resource. I saw it as a foul smelling place that needed to be stayed away from. And as I grow older, I wanted to be a doctor. I was very good in school. I wanted to be a doctor. My pediatrician was a doctor. So I always say being able to see someone doing what you want to do is important. So the role model that you are, Jane, is so important. And when I was in third or fourth grade, we all became aware through a youth-led movement of what we were doing to the environment. People were marching in Washington, D.C. and around the country. The Santa Barbara oil spill had happened. And I just became very worried about the environment. I remember writing a letter to the president of the United States, Richard Nixon, and saying, do something, do something. And, you know, later uh, that same year or a year later, 1970, the president did do something. He formed the Environmental Protection Agency. But I think, you know, wanting to be a doctor, I was going to be a doctor uh, until I got to high school and I went to a program that was designed to expose kids to this field of engineering. I didn't even know what an engineer was when I went to the program, but I came out saying, I'm going to try being an engineer. I'll still go to med school after, but I'll be an engineer. And I, I went to college and I majored in chemical engineering. And for me, what happened was, if you know engineering at all, we do these big diagrams. And in the diagrams, it's, you know, material flows. And there would always be arrows where the material went off the page, you know, well, that was the waste. And the waste was going somewhere. It was either being vented into the air or into the water or into a landfill in someone's neighborhood. And I started to think, you know, if engineers are going to be responsible for making all this material and coming up with these processes and these arrows that go off the page, we should also be responsible for taking care of that waste. We should do something. We have the knowledge. We just aren't thinking of it that way. And of course, the world came to understand the importance of dealing with waste. It was a time when rivers were catching on fires and, you know, smog was a way of life. And so I always tell people I didn't come to the environment from the beautiful side. I wasn't inspired by nature. I was activated by the lack of care for people 
Fine particulate matter in the air shortens people's lives, causes asthma, heavy metals in the water and in the atmosphere ending up in our food cause major impacts on children, on the development of their minds. And so uh, I always tell people I'm an engineer by training and profession, but I feel like I have a little of that medical doctor in me as well. Well, I know, Lisa, that Apple, under your guidance, is really working towards being a very, very environmentally friendly organization. Can you tell me a bit more about that? You know, I joined Apple eight years ago. I found a company that was already on the road to uh, making significant investments in uh, clean energy, uh, had made some real changes that were around the materials that we use in our hardware. But we took all that and we put it on a much faster pace because time is super important. And Apple is a carbon neutral company. Uh, we achieved that milestone last year. I'm happy to say a lot of times you hear companies say we're carbon neutral, but they're buying offsets. And that might work for some companies, but to me, the bigger we are, the more responsibility we have that that carbon neutral is actually clean energy. So about 80% of all the energy we use is clean, which means that most of the energy that we need, we had to build on grids around the world. So that clean energy, almost 80% of it represents new clean energy projects that Apple had to invest in. And then, yes, of course, we have to offset things like travel and logistics. But we're, you know, in the midst of this horrible pandemic. It's an opportunity for us to even rethink those things. So we've promised to now take our entire supply chain to be carbon neutral by 2030 and to help our customers get to carbon neutral for their Apple device use as well. So we see climate change as, you know, we started at home with our own kernel, but this really has to ripple out into the world. And we have a role to play in helping our suppliers. We have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of suppliers, as well as our customers get to carbon neutral as well. My job is to give people hope and inspire, particularly young people, but everyone to live in such a way that we are not harming Mother Nature as much. And the more that we can inspire people to live carbon neutral lives and to think about the environment, the more help you'll get because all your customers will want you to move in that direction. That can make quite a difference. You know, I once had to talk to the executives of an oil company who were actually putting money into roots and shoots. And so it was just a small group of the very top people. This was in China. And so I said to them, you know, I'm really grateful that you're enabling these young people to do these environmental projects. And I said, I hope you realize that we're actually teaching them not to buy your products and it was a kind of dead silence. And afterwards, the CEO said, he said, Jane, thank you. You've made us think. You've really made us think about what we're doing and about our footprint of the planet. And so, you know, if you can get more and more CEOs, and I think Apple giving an example like this, I think there's a lot of competition in your world, isn't there? And if you can attract more customers 
by your attitude towards climate change and the environment, you'll score. So they'll want to score too. So you can sort of lead the charge towards environmental responsibility. And I think it's very exciting. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think uh, I love that word, inspire. There's aspiration in it. There's this belief that there's something new and better that we can all do together. I love that I work for a company that makes products that joins people together, like we're, you know, speaking right now on FaceTime or through our technologies. I love that. But I also think you're entirely right. Look, I think first and foremost, as a company, we should focus on other companies. So Apple has a role and a responsibility to play in showing other companies this can be done. It can be done in a way that's good for your bottom line. It can be done in a way that gets you more customers. And so we're spending a lot of time helping. We have well over 100 companies that have pledged to go 100% clean energy, just like Apple, and they're all our suppliers. So that's our main thrust. It has been for several years now, almost eight gigawatts of clean energy coming online to make those pledges come true. But we also don't want to leave out our customers because our products have always been about empowering people. You know, you mentioned young people, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Young people are dragging us along in some ways, right? And so your words were so uh, prescient because you educate them on why certain products, oil and gas, are not good for the climate, but they are now saying, we connect to each other and we're not going to take this anymore. So you know, you were giving them a warning and it turned out to be very, very true, I think. And and we're seeing that right now. I think you're right. And you know, the other thing that's happening because of what you're investing in helping the planet is creating a lot of jobs. You know, a lot of young people, some of them are working in areas which are gradually losing popularity, like in oil and gas companies. And the writing's on the wall, quite honestly. There's not so much support anymore for buying oil and gas. They want clean, green energy. So to think that they can come and work for a company like Apple or another such organization that you've perhaps inspired, you know, that's very encouraging for them. Because I've talked to young people who say, well, you know, I've been working on this all my life and what's going to happen if that company collapses because people don't buy their products anymore because they're not environmentally friendly? This transition that has to happen, first off, it has to be just, right? We don't want to see only people who have means are invested in the clean economy do well. I mean, we should all be part of the clean economy because it's the economy of the future. Um, that's why we want to spread this idea of you can be a part of the clean energy and the low carbon economy to our suppliers because they're all employers in their individual regions of the world. And so they have to see another path forward. The other thing I say to young people when I speak to them is you can be that force for 
climate change where you are. So what was extraordinary about your words to those executives where you were plowing a field for the people in that company who agree with you, but maybe never had a sympathetic ear. You know, part of what we have to do is say to even the tough ones, and there are tough sectors out there, steel, manufacturing in general, of course, the energy sector. And you're starting to see some energy companies say, we're going to become an energy company, not just a fossil energy company, because they see the writing on the wall. Well, how extraordinary that when they do, you know, not just younger people, but people who've been in this field for a long time are there inside those companies ready to help the transition happen. As important as it is that you work in a clean energy field, in some ways it's more important if you work in a traditional one because you can help to make the change that will really, really matter. And so for young people, I say don't feel like there's any position or place where you're like, no, I can't do that job because that might be the one place where you make the most difference in the whole world. That's absolutely right. And when I began our program, I began it in Tanzania in 1991. So why did I begin it? Because at that time, before COVID restrictions grounded me here in the UK, uh, I was traveling about 300 days a year. And I think you know that because that was how it was when we met in Davos. So all around the world, I was meeting young people who seemed to have lost hope. A lot of them were just apathetic. They didn't seem to care about anything. But some of them were really depressed and others were angry. And so I began talking to them and they all said more or less the same. We feel like because you've compromised our future and there's nothing we can do about it. So, you know, Lisa, we have compromised the future in many, many, many ways for years and years and years. I mean, when they said there was nothing they could do about it, I thought, that's not right. We have a window of time. And if we get together, then we can at least start to heal the harm we've inflicted. We can slow down climate change. We can slow down loss of biodiversity. The main message is every single one of us matters, has a role to play, makes an impact on the planet every day. And some of us, like you and me, we can choose the kind of impact we make. We can choose what we buy. We can choose not to buy it if it was made in an unethical way. But before we can have enough people involved in that, we have to alleviate extreme poverty, where you destroy the environment, you cut down the trees because you're desperate to get a bit more fertile land because your land is over-farmed and infertile. And if you're in an urban area, don't have the luxury we have of choosing what to buy and what not to buy. You just buy the cheapest because you have to. And I think Apple can truly help by sharing the fact that these changes are not impossible. There's enough money out there to alleviate poverty. It's so profound what you just said. I mean, one of the things I always say and I think when I say it, some people hear it and some people they hear the words, but they don't really get it, is that actually alleviating poverty, giving people what they need to have dignified, productive, fully realized lives, which is what each one of us has the, the right to, you know, in my opinion, is 
not at odds with treating our planet and its incredible wealth of resources and diversity right. One of the things we did is this past year, we launched something called the Restore Fund. Our thought was, how do we get resources, corporate resources right now, into the game of protecting these places that support so much more in terms of communities that rely on them. We had done some work with Conservation International where they were putting real resources into protecting mangrove forests in Colombia. But what we showed with that work, what they showed was these mangrove forests were much more than about, oh, we're preserving a beautiful place. They supported the local fishing economy. People were able to feed their families and live if those mangroves were there. So we started to think about what if we did the same kind of thing, but commercially with um, working forests. So, you know, Forests are actually an amazing thing. Having a forest that is thoughtfully and sustainably harvested, so cutting down trees in and of itself is not a bad thing, but preserving the habitat and ensuring that you preserve certain habitats as working forests, but others as more natural forests for biodiversity, those things can live in harmony. So we actually have a $200 million fund. We invest money into the fund. It's managed like any other money fund out there, meaning the whole point of the fund is that you make money on the money you put in, but you also make carbon off of the money you put in, negative carbon off of the money you put in. So this fund has two types of returns, financial and planet. Um, And we want to show if we can make that work, just think about how extraordinary it is if every company is investing in a fund that doesn't pay dividends that are only money. The dividends are also sustainable ones. And it's exactly what you're talking about. We have to find a way, a new way to think about capital and putting it to use in more than just, you know, any way to make money is okay. And we owe it to those young people who are looking at us to help find those new ways to prosper. We desperately need a new relationship with the natural world because we're part of it. We depend on it. But you know what? We depend on healthy ecosystems. And I like to think of the Gombe Forest, which I know so well, ecosystem of the Gombe forest. And so I see it as this interconnected, beautiful, I'll think of it as a tapestry of wonderful life forms, plant and animal. And each little species has a role to play. And so if you think of it as a tapestry, a glorious, wonderful, living tapestry, a little species goes extinct. And when it goes extinct, a thread is pulled from the tapestry. Well, maybe another species depended on that one for food. So pull out another thread. And this can have a ripple effect. And in the end, if enough species of plant and animal become extinct, tapestry will hang in tatters. And what we depend on for clean air, for clean water, for food, for shelter, for everything, is healthy ecosystems. Yes, absolutely. Um, When you translate that beautiful tapestry metaphor over to the work we do here at Apple, you know, we make hardware. We make 
the iPhone, we make iPad, we make wonderful tools. I will actually go so far as to say you need to be connected. In this day and age, everyone from activists to teachers to healthcare lives in a connected world. But can we make those products with less and less of an impact on the natural world? Can we make it in a way that at a minimum we do no harm and maybe in some cases we do good at the same time? Another great example um, We talked about the Restore Fund, but a few years ago, our CEO, Tim Cook, announced that Apple's goal was to make all of our products using only recycled material or renewable material. At the time he said that, there was nowhere in the world you could go and just buy recycled rare earth metals to use in electronics, in consumer electronics. So that one you know, sort of setting of the direction, that North Star, which is now a North Star for all, every engineer at Apple knows that's what we're shooting for, means all of a sudden we're in the market for recycled materials. We're out, you know, talking to companies, small companies, startups, big ones saying, okay, how can we get recycled materials? We started with some tough ones like rare earth elements because, you know, it's a little bit of a misnomer. People think rare means there's not enough of them. In many cases, there's enough for many, many decades, but they're in very small percentages of the crust. And so you have to process a lot, a lot of material to get small amounts that are needed for our products. What if we can take that all away if we're using recycled, because that material has already been extracted from ore. So we are now shipping products with recycled rare earth elements in our magnets and taptic features. We're shipping products with recycled copper and tungsten. Of course, we use recycled aluminum, um, which is something that the world has uh, been doing for a while, but we also use low carbon aluminum. We look for aluminum that is smelted when it is smelted with hydropower. So from the engineering me, that's some of the most interesting work we're doing because we're pushing the boundaries of what is possible in terms of recycling. And we have a ton more to do. And there's folks listening who'll say, I think Apple should be doing more on this and that. And I would say, I agree with you, but we started and we're pretty far along um, at, at this point. And I think there's no going back. Have we talked to you about our Roots and Shoot program that's spreading around the world of collecting up used cell phones so that they can go to a center to have these minerals extracted from them, like coltan? And the reason Roots and Shoots began it is because coltan comes from an area in DRC where there are gorillas and chimpanzees and the people are mining this coltan and so many of the mines are illegal and children are being forced to kind of burrow into the ground to get the coltan. So working with you to spread this, let's recycle not just cell phones and smartphones, but laptops and everything so that the minerals can be extracted from them. Mm-hmm. From batteries. Well, we haven't talked about roots and shoots, but I'm not surprised to know that any program you're affiliated with is tackling that really significant problem. I mean, it is something we've been aware of for years here. They call them conflict minerals because they're also in many cases involved in human to human conflict. Um, but I think you bring up a good point. There's the 
the conflict aspect, there's the labor aspect, there's the environmental aspect. And look, you know, we've also heard the reverse argument that, look, you just these recycled materials are taking away opportunities for people to make money. It cannot be that it requires exploitation in so many different sort of venues, human and ecological and ethical as well. So um, I'm proud that we lead there. And we need to continue to, to push the boundaries and do that work because uh, it's super important. I think it's important for people listening to realize the kind of resilience it takes to stay hopeful. To be honest, if you lose hope, if our young people lose hope, that's the end. Because if you don't hope that the actions that you're taking are going to make a difference, why bother? Nurturing hope in young people, especially in some countries, is so desperately important. And Roots and Shoots is helping them to have hope. Because you know this expression, think globally, act locally. Well, it's wrong. Because once you think globally, you're depressed. You can't help it. I mean... You must be. I must be. I mean, if you think about what's going wrong all around the world, it's jolly depressing, face it. But if you then say, okay, but I'm living here in Bournemouth and I care about what's happening here. For me, it was having people cement up all their, all their gardens so that the hedgehogs were disappearing and that sort of thing. So get together, form a little group and fight for what you think is the right thing to do. And my goodness, you can usually win that fight and you see change happening. And then when you realize, and this is roots and shoots, they realize all around the world, there are young people who care about the same kind of things as we do. Then you dare think globally. So twist it around, act locally, then you dare think globally. I love it. Yes, I love it. I think you're right because... Otherwise, you get caught in the problem of the commons, right? You can't, you're sort of stymied in place. It's not numbers. It's commitment, it's passion, and it's, I like what you said, form a little group. Start where you are. The other thing is to share the good news stories. There are so many, Lisa. And it's not just that I've heard about them. I've seen them. I've met the people tackling what seems impossible because they're so passionate, other people join the cause and the impossible becomes possible. Think of Costa Rica. They were almost totally deforested. And because they worked out this system of paying people to protect the trees instead of making money from cutting them down, biodiversity has come back. Endangered species are being rescued from the brink of extinction. And give nature a chance, and she can reclaim places you've destroyed. Before I joined Apple, I was at the Environmental Protection Agency working for President Obama. And, you know, you would talk to places around the world. Actually, I talked to a guy that worked here at Apple when I, when I was interviewing. And he said, you know, I grew up in Pittsburgh. It was a steel town, right? Steel town. He said, I remember we used to play a game when I was little. We would drive downtown and see who could 
first spot a skyscraper. And sometimes we would have to be almost across the street before we could see anything. That's how much smog was in the air. In, you know, the period of his lifetime, the skies in major cities in this country and others have gone from deathly dangerous to healthy. There are still pockets where they're not, and they tend to be in poor communities and around highways. There's a whole justice component. But think about our major cities now, whether it's, you know, Delhi or Beijing or cities that are looking at it. Mother Nature will work with you. (laughs) I've always been amazed at how quickly there seems to almost be a bias towards healing in nature, that if we make One step, nature seems to come around and try to make five. And that gives me incredible hope because just like we're seeing nature say, look, I'm magnifying the results of climate change because it's just getting worse. It would magnify the efforts of ending climate change if we do it, you know. When I went to Africa to learn more about why chimpanzees were disappearing, how the forests were being destroyed, I realized a lot about what was happening to the chimps, but also the problems faced by so many of the people living in and around Chim habitat and the crippling poverty, the lack of health and education, the degradation of the land. And it came to a head when I flew over the tiny Gombe National Park and what had once been surrounded by forest was now a tiny pocket of protected forest surrounded by bare hills. And that's when it hit me. If we don't help these people find ways of making a living without destroying the environment because they're trying to live, then we can't save chimps, forests, or anything else. And so we began our Take Care or Takari program, which is the Jane Goodall Institute's method of community-led conservation. We picked a tiny team of local Tanzanians, and they went into the 12 villages around Gombe, Instead of being a bunch of arrogant white people saying, well, you know, we've come to tell you what to do. It was local people that they trusted saying, what can we do to help? So we began how they wanted with restoring fertility to the overused farmland, with no chemicals, by the way, better health and education, working with the Tanzanian authorities. And then as they came to trust us, we could introduce scholarships to keep girls in school. And microcredit based on my beloved Muhammad Yunus's Grameen Bank, so that groups of especially women could choose their own environmentally sustainable small businesses. You know, this, this program is now in 104 villages through the whole chimpanzee range in Tanzania. And from each of the villages where most of the chimps live in their village forest reserves unprotected, and they've all provided volunteers come to workshops and learn how to use smartphones, monitoring the health of the forest, all of it going up to a platform in the clouds. So this has been so successful that the people are now our partners in conservation because they understand fully that protecting the environment isn't just for wildlife, it's just their own future as well. Do you think that same model could work for climate change, where communities are activated to find the solutions that work 
for themselves. And so they have a stake in this future. I mean, part of climate is it feels like these big issues of transportation or food or the built environment are someone else's issue. But how can we get communities to be as active in climate as they are in conservation? You know, this wonderful model, just something for us all to think about, because I truly believe in my heart that the more communities are engaged, the more likely we solve this problem, because communities at that level, some of the noise falls away and people come together to solve a problem, you know? Yes, indeed. And we're just about to publish a book called Takari. So this book will provide a blueprint that's ready to be scaled up. Yeah, I, I can't wait to see it and I, to talk to you some more about this. You, you just gave me a whole big chunk of hope. So. <laughs> well, we all need it. We all need it. We all need it. You see, talking to people like you gives me hope. So it, it's a quid pro quo. I give you hope, you give me hope. And then our joint improved hopes inspire many other people to be hopeful. That's how it works. I'm so inspired by you, Jane. The women who early on realized that we have to step up and see things as not linear, as part of a system, as part of a much bigger opportunity, if we're going to talk about hope. I can't tell you how much that's meant in my life. And we don't know which one of those roots and shoots, or maybe you already know, but which one of those students will be the next person who will carry the torch into the future. But I just want to thank you for everything you've meant in my life and to so many lives and for your leadership and your concern and your care and your love. Well, I can equally thank you for taking the role you've taken. And I'm truly appreciative of your time because I know how busy you are. Oh, are you kidding? I'd do anything for you. You're the busy one. We know you're the busy one. So thanks for having me. Sometimes people don't understand how terribly, terribly important it is to recycle old cell phones. There are hundreds and thousands of cell phones lying around. They have coltan in them. Coltan is often illegally mined. It's leading to the destruction of the rainforest, the death of gorillas and chimpanzees and other animals, and immense hardship for the people. So please, recycle your cell phone. It really will make a difference. Feel hopeful and inspired to act with the Jane Goodall Hopecast by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and anywhere podcasts are found. I'm your host, Jane Goodall. The Jane Goodall Hopecast is produced by the Jane Goodall Institute. Our production partner is Frequency Media. Michelle Corey is our executive producer, Ina Gaukusha is our producer, and Matthew Ernest Filler is our editor and sound designer. Our music is composed and performed by Ruth Mendelssohn with additional violin tracks from Angie Shear. Sound design and music composition for the Conservation Chorus 
is by Matthew Ernest Filler.